This is a Federal News Network podcast. Contractors and their representatives report troubles with the multiple award schedule system. The MAS is the long-running and very popular system for delivering routine products to the government. The General Services Administration has operated the schedules for decades. For what's going on, federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And Larry, it sounds like there's big, I don't know, sand being thrown in the gears by the GSA itself. What, what reports are you hearing? Tom, the reports that I'm hearing is that there's substantial disconnect between the strategic visions set at the top of GSA for what they want the schedules to be and the line level or tactical level inside the agency about what's actually happening. When you talk to the senior people, Tom, they talk about, well, of course, we're going to come up with a policy to help with inflation. Schedules consolidation is nearly complete and going very well. We have new procedures in place to balance workload and get things done in a timely manner. And then when you go and have the conversations with the contracting people that are having discussions with their contracting counterparts in GSA, it's like you're on two different planets. I wouldn't say that they're Venus and Mars, but they're certainly not the same planet. You know, there are significant delays in getting uh, anything done, uh, more data, perpetually more data if a contractor wants to get uh, a new item added or a contract extended. And then on top of that, good luck getting a price increase, even if you can justify it, at least until GSA gets around to issuing its much-anticipated inflation policy. Right. And of course, everyone's feeling the inflation right now, but it could be a long time until they can get their prices adjusted. And you're also writing that there are tendencies by GSA contracting officers to reject applications for contracts over a minor detail instead of letting people just update the application already in there. And that resets the clock back however many weeks it took to get to that point. Right. And it does. Uh, Look, what usually happens, Tom, is that, you know, somebody submits an offer and if it has some questions or not everything was in the original package, the contracting officer needs to see, they send a clarification letter. You know, it's kind of a minor administrative change and you, you update the offer and continue on with the process. Now, a lot of times what happens is that GSA will just send an, a rejection letter that says, not good enough, clean it up, try again. That makes the process longer and more expensive for contractors because they got to go back, do a whole lot more work, do a lot more stuff. And it makes it longer for GSA. But ironically, the way the system works is it actually makes it look like it's taking a shorter amount of time for GSA because every time they issue a rejection, their own performance clock starts over with the resubmission of a new offer. So that's a a little time management tool that GSA is using, but it's one that increases time and aggravation for contractors. I guess the question is, why are they making it so troublesome now? What's Why all the bureaucracy? The MAS is supposed to be the program of least friction of doing business with the government. Tom, that's particularly true when you look at what type of businesses constitute the vast majority of scheduled contract holders. And those are small businesses. Over two-thirds, maybe as much as 80% of uh, contractors on the schedules program are small businesses. And those businesses actually do real business. About a third of schedules business every year is done by 
small business prime contractors. This is a great success story for small businesses. And yet GSA almost seems out to be its worst own worst enemy uh, in raising the bar and making it difficult, not just for large businesses, but the small businesses that are succeeding or trying to succeed. My own belief, Tom, is that we are seeing the GSA Office of the Inspector General play a co-program management role. We've had this happen for years over in the Department of Veterans Affairs on their side of the schedules program, Tom, where it's been understood, if not well-liked, by VA contractors that, you know, you've got to do everything through the IG if you're going to do anything on the VA federal supply schedule program. We're almost at that place right now at GSA. You know, industry thinks that the IG exists primarily to clamp down on contractors that don't do the right thing. Sure. And yet they're very active inside GSA, dunning contracting officers and contract specialists who don't follow their advice. I guess you could say the 1990s have called and they want their old MAS back from the GSA. <laughs> Something like that. We're, um, yes. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is the budget is finally enacted for 2022. What are we, six months into the fiscal year? It's kind of a joke. But nevertheless, the $1.5 trillion is there, gravy and all. What should contractors do now to make the most of the time they've got in the fiscal year? Tom, contractors have to be prepared to be best friends to their government customers. They have to anticipate what the customer is going to ask them for, have it ready before the customer asks for it, whether it's a response to an RFI or a draft RFQ. Uh, whether it's a request to, hey, what should the scope of this acquisition look like, or a request on what type of acquisition method the government should use to acquire a specific good or service. Contractors should be ready to offer suggestions that help their customers get things done quickly, efficiently, and with minimal amounts of fraud, waste, and abuse so that we can get this money that Congress has allocated. Full year of money, as far as I can tell, Tom, and more of it this year than last year for every federal agency. With all of that, the big question mark is time, and there's not going to be enough time to get everything out the door. So what can contractors do? Contractors can help make the process as timely as possible. Be ultra-responsive. Be quick. Don't assume that your contracting officer knows the best way to buy something Make sure you're there to recommend it. And presuming there will be another continuing resolution, and that's going to be starting in, again, October 1st, would it also be wise to make sure that you can start as many programs as you want to, with, as, as you're able to, I should say, with your federal customer? And in that way, once it's an established program, even if you only get $1 of it this fiscal year, it will be subject to continuation under a CR should that occur at the end of this fiscal Tom, I think that's great advice, and it's advice that I always give uh, further down in the year, but it's worth doing right now because of the lateness with which Congress gave us appropriations. So looking to see what funds you can obligate across a wide front of projects, even if you're not obligating a lot of funds right now, you can obligate something that qualifies as a project start and take as wide a swath as you need to in order to make sure that mission critical and other projects that have just been sitting there 
in some cases for a couple of cycles, because you never get around to them, actually can get some movement. Because we will have government by CR for FY23. It's a congressional election year. That usually means that Congress goes home a little bit earlier so they can go run for re-election. It means that depending on the outcome of that election, you know, we may or may not have final appropriations for FY23 by the end of the current calendar year. So you, you could be looking at a, the scenario that's similar to the one we've seen this year for next year. If you look at that and think, I don't like doing business that way, it makes sense to commit money to as many projects as you can so that you can keep stuff going under what could be a lengthy continuing resolution. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. With Target Red Card, you'll save 5% every day, in-store and online. Find the Red Card that's right for you, whether it's debit, credit, or Target's new Red Card Reloadable, which doesn't require an existing bank account or credit check. With Target Red Card, you'll get exclusive deals and free shipping on most items. Visit Target.com slash Red Card to get all the details. It's always a great day to save. Restrictions apply.